0: This podcast is an unedited excerpt from an MCLE program presented at MCLE's Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, please see the MCLE website.
1: Okay, so what I've got the unenviable task of doing is talking about how we collect fees and and going one step beyond where Rich left off. And I'm basically going to introduce some general comments and then try to focus on, on actual remedies. Legal fees are collected like any other debt, with usual remedies, We've got to assume that there's proper record keeping and there have been attempts made to resolve the case and to weigh the pros and cons, which I'll discuss, and be be ready to understand if you can't deal with a lien issue, either for time or for substance, contract actions, real estate attachments, trustee process attachments, again, typically bank accounts uh, enable you to get Prejudgment judgment remedies in certain circumstances. There's injunctive relief available. And, and, and as Rich mentioned, attorney's fees are liens particularly applicable to what we're doing. Understand that lawyers always have the obligation to be fair and reasonable when they're dealing with fees, whether it's arbitration or whether it's liens. That's critical. Uh, Joe will deal more specifically with professional conduct rule 1.5, fees must be, they they must not be clearly excessive and they must, in order not to constitute a violation of the ethics rules, and they also point out the fact that we're a consumer industry and we're dealing with clients who are engaged engaging us in a service industry and they expect certain kinds of of uh, results and treatment as as Roseanne so well stated. I wanna point out what somebody else alluded to in a a recent, well, actually it's from 2003, but the Mass Bar did a study and a survey of clients statewide, and these were really appalling to me. 40% of clients think their lawyers did not put clients' needs first. Nearly 20% thought their lawyers were not honest or ethical. Seventy-five percent of clients believe it takes too long to go to court and it costs too much. Uh, out of a listing of, it sounds like the impeachment proceedings, out of a list of 71 job categories, Americans rank lawyers 56 in honesty and integrity. Uh, lawyers are perceived uh, more in the category of crime bosses, uh, uh, et cetera. They're, they're really... Uh, it's something that that we ought to be aware of. 80% of malpractice claims are the result of poor client relations. Joe will talk more about that and talk about the statistics of family law cases being among those more prominent in the BBO annals. Uh, One satisfied client will tell 13 other people about negative experiences. We all deal with this phenomenon of social media. And and understand that when you get involved with collection and go the next route of actively suing a client, social media is going to be involved, and and it 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 can, you know, be there for a long time. Uh, it takes twenty positive impressions per person to offset a single negative one. Now, even though it was two thousand three, I'm not sure that that it's not true today. Understand that when you're dealing with whether it's pendant to light of fees at the inception of a case, uh, or or asking for fees as you go along and you need an expert, or you're looking for, you know, uh, uh, you know various expenses to be paid, understand that statutes that I'm going to very quickly go through and are on my materials deal with attorney's fees as, as available within that statute. If you're talking about one nineteen fifty one A reporting suspected abuse or neglect. Employer discharges, discriminates, or retaliates against a person may very well be liable for treble damages. There are child support enforcement remedies that, that provide for for uh fees where health coverage is is uh, uh impermissibly denied a client or a child that there may be fees available for under that statute, uh, section uh, Mass, jo- Mass General Laws, Chapter 208, Section 17. Again, that deals with what Linda spoke of. The pentelitis- pendente fees usually would be allowed. They may very well, on a on a second application, be uh, uh, determined to be uh, uh, debane In other words, they may be. Uh, ultimately considered at the allocation of assets. If more fees than than appear to be appropriate at initially, or one side complains that that uh, they shouldn't be taken out of a certain account, they they may very well be advanced and then and then considered again at the end of the case. Uh, there's a case Amaral versus Amaral. I've cited the the uh, it's a 2008 case where, again, when you're asking for fees under Section 38 of 208, the behavior during trial, in addition, uh, uh, you know, whether it's discovery abuse or other areas, sanctions may be available, and that may be another uh, avenue to request uh, uh, fees by statute. Uh, 209A, uh, I didn't realize when I was putting this together that, that attorney fees and other expenses resulting from the alleged abuse are available under uh, the Abuse Prevention Mass General Laws 209A, 209C. Of course, you're you're dealing with uh, paternity. You're at dealing with actions of unmarried parents, and understand that there can't be discrimination between uh, 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 cases under 208 and 209C, and and also. Fees may be uh, uh, available both pendant toliDA and at the end of at the end of the case uh, children you know involving children born of a marriage or, or out of wedlock uh, the the rights under the equal protection uh, uh, provisions of the Constitution should be available in both cases uh, the uniform Interstate Family Support Act provides for costs and fees uh, of course we know that when we prosecute a contempt, that uh, uh, reasonable attorney's fees and expenses relating to the attempted resolution, initiation, and prosecution of a complaint for contempt are, are available to be requested. If you feel that, that there's been frivolous or bad faith claims and one of the, uh, one of the cases that's attached to Rich's material uh, deals with a particular case where it's, uh, 231 Section 6F relief might be available, but understand that that's also a statute uh, available to us to seek, to seek uh, fees uh, uh, in and of itself. Uh, now you're dealing with a question of, of, how do I collect receivables informally? And, and again, we, I discussed a uh, uh, concern of mine is looking at mass courts, finding out past representation, finding out available resources, we at a larger firm than Roseanne's, we have an intake committee and in order to open a case, you have to provide for there being available resources in order to to uh uh satisfy what you've set as a as a possible budget, which may in fact exceed the the retainer because you realize that that based upon some of the claims it may exceed the retainer and and the the firm wants to make sure that there are our assets available. And, and, you know, that's something that everybody really wants to consider before you take a case, whether the issues, whether the issues in litigation are going to be satisfied by the, uh, you know, clients uh, concerns for getting the relief requested, but also being able to, to pay for, you know, these novel remedies that might be requested Uh, prior to formal collection proceedings. Think about withdrawal. Think about what Rich talked about perfecting a lien if you get the if, if there hasn't been successor counsel, and and you find that there's a need to withdraw in a case because of, of many, many reasons, but make sure that that you know that if if collection looks like it's going to be a, a constant problem that you deal with it sooner rather than later. You know, when you're dealing with setting out, as, as we often do, a sort of a discovery protocol of what, what might be required, it may be that if if uh, uh, receivables are behind, that you may want to talk to the client about avoiding certain types of discovery, like depositions that may be more costly. Uh, you may find that, uh, you know, what you need to do if a client has fallen behind is, is when you talk about replenishment of retainers, when you send out a, a request, an invoice, that uh, that future bills are paid, are due uh, upon receipt of the invoice, and that may be something that you need to negotiate with a client. If there's providing notice with the invoice, that that there are interest provisions, if the fee is not paid, what we often do is provide interest, maybe 12, even higher than 12%, 14% as an incentive, but the client should should know of that. I one of the questions that I'm going to uh, leave for Joe to talk about when he uh, when he discusses his position is whether or not we have a right to inform a a, uh, a credit reporting agency if a client is behind. To what extent can we, as counsel, uh, utilize uh, uh, either what is uh, a client's credit report, or to report one a, a debt to us as a as a debt that uh, you know the client may very well not want reported to a credit agency? Is that ethical? Is that is that appropriate to include? As I've seen in in many fee agreements, now often fee agreements include arbitration clauses. Uh, when Linda discussed uh, typical fee agreements, understand that when you have an arbitration clause, you may be precluding the opportunity to sue a client, to engage in certain civil remedies because you've opted toward arbitration. But understand that you know, informing a client that there is uh, a remedy like the fee uh, uh, arbitration board, and I'm gonna use the mass bar just because I'm more familiar with that, but just think about you know, the explaining to a client that, that if there is a dispute, what's involved? Because, again, in order for an arbitration clause to be enforced, there's got to be agreement between the client and the firm. And that's critical in the language of an arbitration clause. And understand, as a lot of people aren't aware, that the the legal fee arbitration board, for example, of the Mass Bar, enables you to arbitrate and also to mediate. And they will appoint a mediator for a, a limited session, but before you get involved in the formality of arbitration, you can opt out to to uh, uh, to mediation and I, and I refer people to the rules of the legal fee arbitration board, which are included in my materials and and understand that that the rules are are, are, are clear, there's the only issue. Before the fee arbitration board is the fairness and reasonableness of the value of the lawyer's services. As I said, mediation is available, and and in the rule material, uh, in addition to the rules themselves, are forms. There are model fee agreements that are published. There are there is it, it's helpful to know what the fees involved are in order to to arbitrate a fee uh, request. In excess of $10,000, there's a three-member panel. If it's under uh, $10,000, uh, there is a uh, there is, I believe, one member is 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 uh, uh, it's a one-attorney panel. And, and an award, once you go through fee arbitration, an award may be enforced by the superior court. And I've cited the case of Marino versus Tagris which is is uh, uh, under the court's general superintendent's powers, collection remains a problem for enforcement. You can go before the fee arbitration board. you can have the, the fee arbitration uh, 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 in fact become a, a judgment, but understand that you've then got the, the problem of, of, of collection. it's it's uh, it is. You know that's really something that you've got to be aware of, and in a, a trap for the unwary. When you get involved with arbitration, understand that when you go before the fee arbitration board, you are generally not litigating anything but the question of of the value of services. And 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 one trap for the unwary is that that the client not being given a free opportunity to file a counterclaim for negligence or malpractice. May be able to use the fee arbitration board as you want them to do to set a cap for the fee, and then turn around and and uh, and sue the lawyer for uh, malpractice. Uh, and and in that way, what the smart client has done is they've set a cap for fees and then and then file their claim, save their claim for malpractice. Uh, uh, a clever client might obtain. In order to stay an obligation to pay the arbitrator's award pending the outcome of, of trial on the malpractice issue. And, and an alternative that, that I suggest that, that you might consider is going before uh, a private uh, uh, arbitration panel where you include the issue of, of, uh, of malpractice and, and both parties stipulate that that's an issue that's going to be. Arbitrated in private arbitration, and you know there's a big effort underway to to adopt the the uh, a, a special family law uh, the arbitration uh, 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 statute, which is a derivative of the Uniform uh, Family Law Arbitration uh, Act, and uh, this would enable you to do that within a within a group of of arbitrators who are particularly familiar with. With family law issues, uh, Rich talked about uh, attorney's liens, and and certainly a very effective remedy. But just remember again that it must be filed prior to the entry of judgment nisi. And and uh, uh, when we talk about suing a client, which are words that nobody really likes to hear, um, you know what what we want to do is to make sure that that we consider pros and cons uh, available. That that uh, does the client have cause to complain about your services or the reasonableness of the fee? Uh, are we are we dealing with uh, even with no cause for a complaint? Is a client likely to complain anyways? Uh, uh, is the client irate? Has the client expressed you know a particular proclivity to deal with social media or to 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 communicate with you about Overcharging and, and again, you know, the client also has remedies and, and, you know, you want to be wary of, of a possible uh, 93A action that might warrant treble damages. You know, think of as much as Joe is a nice guy, understand that, that there's always a BBO risk and, and that's something that everybody should be aware of. And when you, when you deal with litigating uh, a fee issues, you've got this rule 1.6 B5 dealing with what should I disclose and not disclose about the confidential relationship that I have with a client and why there might be a fee arbitration uh, or a, or a fee dispute that that's worth enforcement. And what can, how can the client possibly use what I, what I've said in a, in a BBO action, because I've, you know, remember the case may not be over, and I'm bringing to the court's attention issues that that might be perceived as prejudicial or confidential. Um, and again, a trap for the unwary. And and I I say this we had discussions before this course began, of you know clients making side deals, and and you know we had a case recently where where there was a an agreement that the payment would be directly made to counsel, uh, to us in that particular case. And the question arose as to whether or not there was going to be a, a deal between the parties we always include in these uh, separation agreements, the parties can self-modify agreements. What if the clients themselves decide that they're gonna uh, opt out of that provision and, and, uh, and pay one party or the other? Do you have a contempt remedy you want to even think about when you're drafting the agreement, providing a remedy in the event the client decided to to do something like that. Uh, you know there are there are issues of uh, we found recently in a case where a, a client had uh, <clears throat> uh, made a deal with the the ex-husband to essentially convey certain property with the understanding that that uh, it would appear that the, the, the outstanding obligation to counsel uh, perfected by a lien would be, uh, would, would really have no merit because the assets were, were going to be self-dealt between the parties. And, and just, you know, be aware there are some cases that, that uh, may very well be, in this case, I was tipped off because I got an email from, from uh, somebody who wasn't particularly friendly with a former client that certain things had gone on when we went to look for the you know look at the case to see what was going on it was very apparent that the client was very aware of this outstanding fee and and wanted to do whatever could be done to uh you know to to make herself uh uh uh, immune from from that litigation we ultimately sued we got an attachment and and summary judgment in superior court and ended up uh, uh, settling with a client. Understand that if you, somebody had mentioned a guardianship question, if you're appointed a category F guardian, understand that even though the court may designate 10 hours or 12 hours or eight hours, that you have the right, if the case is more complicated than the judge might have been aware of at the inception, that you may want to go in and ask uh, ask the court to extend the hours, and, and you want to be aware in a particular a court whether you should go in early or whether you should go in after the report is done and you can justify it in the report itself. Um, so now we're at the point where we've tried as hard as we can to to do everything that Roseanne said and, and to, to, to be civil and to be nice. We've litigated the case and, and either we've passed the date of judgment or we haven't exercised the lien appropriately. What do we do if we want to enter into a suit? And and I suggest that if if that's done, often outside counsel is engaged, and and uh, there are always efforts to try to settle a case with outside counsel at least in those limited circumstances where we may be involved with a, a suit for collection. That once you've exercised those those pros and cons and those those efforts to resolve the case, you may want to say, okay, let's go to the small claims court because the the uh, 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 ad damnum doesn't exceed seven thousand dollars or whatever the the fee limit is as of today. There's a a quick hearing. There are magistrates. It's less expensive to litigate. There's a lower filing fee until post judgment collection. But you can't exercise certain remedies like uh, uh, trustee process and attachment in the in the in small claims court. But it may be a a, a proceeding where where there is testimony of the, of the fee that is owed, and it may very well be that the magistrate uh, uh, or the judge in a particular court may uh, be able to settle the case without a lot of uh, uh, litigation costs. There is no right in the small claims court for post-judgment attachment, and there is no opportunity for discovery. So then the question is, what about the district court? So there is concurrent jurisdiction. Damages may exceed $25,000, and there are pre- and post-judgment attach- attachment remedies available. Judgment uh, uh, is usually uh, obtained without the need for a live witness in court. You can, if you can get a pre-judgment attachment, you may find that that goes a long way toward resolving a case, and there again are advantages in the District Court of discovery. In the Superior Court, while it may very well be a more expensive process, that if the claim involves an unusual legal question, as some of those cases that Rich included in the materials that you have online, that may very well be uh, uh, a jurisdiction that you want because there are difficult or or complex legal questions, uh, or you want you recognize that there are time standards, it might take a longer time, but but you want the court to seriously consider those cases, which may, to some extent, be cases of, of first impression. You have a right in the district court and in the superior court for a jury trial. And, and, you know, lastly, the issue of, of you know, where, where Rich talked about a lien and trying to Possibly get an attachment on certain assets by virtue of, a, of an attorney's lien. If not, think about a prejudgment attachment uh, in the, the jurisdiction that you exercise, whether it's the district or superior court. You're talking about trying to encumber assets uh, during the pendency of a lawsuit uh, as security, uh, which often give you an opportunity to, to try to resolve the case if, if there is counsel involved for the client or whether there is not, that it does give you some bargaining position. Understand that, that U.S. counsel need to show uh, three different prongs uh, of a test under, under uh, uh, Mass Rule of, of Civil Procedure 4.1. There's a reasonable likelihood of success in the merits. There's a reasonable likelihood that the creditor will recover a judgment Including interest and in costs in an amount equal to or greater than the amount to be attached, and the amount sought to be attached uh, uh, exceeds the amount of any liability insurance uh, shown by the debtor to be able to satisfy the judgment. And trustee process uh, a, an alternative uh, source of obtaining security relief when the assets might be held by another party. And and here you you have a judgment. You're, you're talking about attaching property or assets while you're in the possession of another party. It may be a bank. It may be a, a, a trust. It may be a, 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 some sort of a, a mortgage interest. Uh, uh, and, and Rule 4.2 does not allow for trustee process attachment of wages until the claim has been reduced to judgment. Now, we had a case recently where where there was a contempt judgment in the probate court that the client violated, and we were able to attach the by we, we were able to attach and avoid extensive litigation of wages through a teacher's retirement. Understand there are statutory limits, and I've cited some of those limits in my material, but but the there is an opportunity uh, under certain circumstances to attach wages and. I just wanted before I, before I end, uh, I, I, I really think that looking at the rules, uh, uh, of what's required before the fee arbitration board, there really are, you know, you, you, there's an opportunity to, to call witnesses, copies of documentation. Uh, there's a, there, there really is a, uh, an extensive proceeding by experienced people and, joe can certainly comment on it but i think that that at least i have found that when you go before the fee arbitration board often there are lawyers even from the family law field who understand some of the the details involved and 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 uh well looking at the rules is really a really a good education uh linda i think that uh i'm i hope that nobody listening Needs to sue clients, but, but this is a remedy available.
0: Don, that was incredibly thorough. And I just want to uh, pick up on something you talked about where the client does an end run and makes a side deal with the, the, party, the other party to pay fees. Well, I, I had that case. It was a trial. And the judge ordered the husband to pay, I think it was $50,000, to the wife for her attorney's fees, um, which of course meant to me, but the, the, the order said to the wife, they then made a side deal. He paid the 50 to her and she discharged my fee in bankruptcy and I tried a contempt. I brought a contempt and I will tell you, I had a very, very sympathetic judge, but there really was nothing, she would not hold him in content, So the, the moral of that story is when you are doing your proposed judgments after a trial, make it very clear that the fee is to be paid directly to the attorney, because that that was a very bad experience, and I, and I have remembered it every time I have done a proposed judgment since to make it very clear, because if that happens and the fee is not paid, then you do at least have a contempt, you at least have an opportunity to bring it before the judge and, you know, have the parties try to justify why they're going to try to screw the lawyer out of a fee. But um, just a practice tip on that. Rich, are there questions? Nothing. Nothing? Oh, my <laughs> God.
1: Don, was... you were so thorough. Exactly. That really uh, great. Uh, that was it. It's like okay. ending early. In an and you know, hour. you know one thing that's very interesting is when you look at Roseanne and you look at at, at we are a firm of 91 lawyers, that there are different systems in place and and uh, you know having an intake committee and trying to be as proactive initially.